Okay, so church, I acknowledge that this particular movie is a little hard to get a hold of right now. It's still playing in theaters. It's not on Netflix. It's not on any other streaming uh, material. So just to put your minds at ease, I will try to keep the spoilers to a minimum. I'm not talking about any of the key things that happen in this movie that um, really shape it, but just in case, spoiler alert. All right, but really, I'm going to be really focusing on the trailer and what we've seen in the trailer because the trailer of this movie tells us a lot of what we need to know. Right, the movie is a 10-year-old boy. His name is Jojo. He is a member of the Hitler Youth, and he is forced to confront his blind nationalism when he finds out that his mother is hiding a Jew in the attic of their own home. Oh, and his imaginary friend so happens to be Hitler. Or Hitler as seen through the eyes of a 10-year-old boy. And so even though this trailer, even though through this premise, you can kind of tell this is a little bit of a, a quirky comedy but it, because it's touching upon World War II, it's, because it's touching upon all of these things, the film does have its depth. It's trying to navigate through like a lot of these challenging situations, right? The movie is written and directed by Taika Waititi. He's the same person that brought us Thor Ragnarok. He is also the person who happens to play Hitler in this film. And he also happens to be part Jewish himself. And so um, even as, through writing this and, and playing who he plays, um, he, you can tell that he, um, in, in crafting all of this stuff, he's wrestling with some pretty big themes and ideas, some, some things that are even uh, quite personal to himself. And one of those key themes, one of those major themes that you will see in this movie when you go watch it, I'm trying to preach in a way that makes you want to go and watch this movie. Um, one of the key things that Watiti talks about or he focuses on in the movie is the power of... It's Valentine's So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about love. It's Valentine's this coming Friday. So men, you can put that in your calendars or, or women or whatever. Like just put it in your calendar so you know, right? Valentine's is coming up Friday. And so that is what we're going to be talking about, love. This one of these major themes in this movie. And in fact... You know, one of the most powerful lines in this whole film is when Jojo Mother's Rosie, played by Scarlett Johansson, she tells Jojo in the trailer, love is the strongest thing in the world. Love is the strongest thing in the world. You know, the more I've been thinking about that line, the more I was thinking, that is so very true. And in fact, love can be so very strong, it can also be incredibly dangerous. Right? And we see that at the beginning of the film because at the start of the film, Jojo is definitely full of love. But his, he was in love with Hitler. He was in love with being a Nazi. He was in love with the Third Reich. And I think Jojo's love for Hitler is shown so very well at the start of this movie where Jojo is in his whole Hitler youth outfit and he's just enthusiastically saluting everyone with a heil or a hail to Hitler. And while he's doing this, he's running around town, he's doing this to everybody he sees, there's this Beatles song playing in the background, the Beatles song, I Want to Hold Your Hand, playing in German. And while he's doing this, there are all of these cuts to Beatles fans screaming, losing their mind over the Beatles during Beatlemania. And you know, church, you know what the word fan is short for? The word fan is short for fanatic. 
And I think that's what Watiti is trying to show here in the start of the film. He's showing that Jojo is, was so swept up with this youthful love and devotion to Hitler, just like so many people got swept up with the Beatles in the 1960s. And in fact, his, he was so in love with Hitler and Nazi Germany that he became a fanatic. And this is reinforced by this, that wonderful scene in our trailer where the Gestapo agent, he walks into Jojo's room and he sees all of the posters, he sees all of the paraphernalia, and he says, I wish more of our young boys had more of your blind fanaticism. The power of love is so very strong. And Jojo's love for Hitler was so strong it made him blind to Hitler's hate. It made him blind to his cruelty and his pride. Because like the old saying goes, love is blind. And you know, church, a lot of the time, I have heard that very same criticism leveled on all sorts of things. Everything can make you blind if you love it enough. Sports teams, a social class, a type of diet, a religion, an ethnicity. Those are all things that if you love so much that you, that you can be devoted to so much, it could turn you into a fanatic. It can lead you to exclude. It could lead you to feel superior to other people who maybe who don't like the same sports team that you like. It can even make you hate others who are not in that same group as you and make you blind to the fact that you're doing it. And so sometimes when I'm walking around Vancouver, like it can't get after a conversation or two, it usually gets out that I'm a pastor. Sometimes the sentiment I get when I tell them that I'm a pastor, um, at least in Vancouver, is, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a Christian, but you should tone it down. Like, you shouldn't love so much you become a fanatic of it, right? Because if you, if you become a fanatic of it, if you become a fanatical Christian, then you'll start to exclude other people. You'll start to hate. You'll start to grow in all of those things, right? And so as I was thinking about the passage that we're going to look at today, and I was praying over, like, um, the material of this movie, I was, couldn't help but think, you know, if Paul was alive today, the Apostle Paul, if he was alive today and he saw a church growing in this attitude of moral superiority or he saw a church growing in this attitude of contempt for people outside of the church or who, who weren't followers of Jesus, he wouldn't say, church, you need to be less devoted to Jesus. You need to be less fanatical. He would actually say, church, you're not being devoted to Jesus enough. He would say, church, you're being spiritual babies. And what you need to do is grow up in love. And so the passage that I was um, brought to for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this is Paul's wonderful chapter on love. And now let's take a look at that for a second before we continue to roll on. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, he, it reads like this, starting from verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I have, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not... Um, irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. That's great, fans. So, okay. You know, I love this passage. It's a wonderful passage. I've heard this passage a lot. I've read over this passage a lot. This is probably and one the top passage, one of the top two or three um, that people ask me to preach on when I do weddings. And I think that kind of points out, that kind of goes to show a lot of the times when we read this passage, one of the first things we think is, oh, how beautiful. What a lovely passage. What a wonderful picture of love. But you know, that would not be the case to the original hearers of this passage. They would not think, how beautiful, how wonderful. Because Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and this church is very talented, very capable, full of spiritual gifts, and Paul is basically calling them kids. He's calling them spiritual babies. He's telling them that they need to grow up. And even though all of their gifts, all of their contributions, all of these things are good for the life of the church, for Paul, every gift, every good thing needed to grow out of this soil of love, and he didn't see that um, these things were growing out of the soil of love at the church in Corinth. For Paul, love was the measuring stick. It was the growth chart for the church. And that's why in verses 1 to 3, Paul is saying, if you have all of these gifts, if you have all of these talents, if you have all of these abilities, if you're doing all these, these things, but it's not growing out of love, it's worthless. not attached to them, then they are nothing. They are absolutely worthless. And you know, church, I think that Paul can say what he's saying because he's talking about a very specific kind of love in this passage. Because look at what, let's look again at what Paul says about it in verse 4 to 7. This is a very specific description of love here. Love is patient and kind. This is from the ESV. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and then love never fails. I mean, it's a very comprehensive description of Christian love. But this is not Paul's definition of Christian love. I think we need to get that clear. This is not Paul's definition of Christian love. We'll get to the definition of love in a bit. But these four, few verses is a list of 15 verbs that outline the different ways Christian love should lead us to act, different ways Christian love should lead us to behave. So for Paul, love is something that changes you. Love is something that changes how you relate to others as you grow up in it, as you mature in it. So these verses, they're not a definition, like I was saying. They're a description. 
there are a description of what it looks like to live out of love. And because these verses are a description of love, I love David Platt's treatment of this. He tells us that a great way to tell how mature we are in this kind of love is by placing the word love with our own names. For example, when we say, I am patient or Albert is patient and kind. I do not envy or boast. I am not arrogant or rude. I do not insist on my own way. I am not irritable or resentful. I do not rejoice in wrongdoing, but I rejoice with the truth. I bear all things. I believe all things. I hope all things. I endure all things. I never fail. I mean, I think that's pretty humbling, isn't it? When I first did that, I was just like floored. And the thing is, I don't think anybody can do this exercise and not be humbled. I do not think anybody can do this exercise and not think that they have a lot of growing up to do. And if we were honest, we'd all acknowledge that we all fall so very short of this particular kind of love. And I think that's because in this passage, Paul is trying to describe something that is characteristic of God's very nature. Like it says in 1 John 4.16, God is love. That is why love is even greater than faith. That is why love is even greater than hope. That is why love never fails, because love is indicative of God's very nature. And if that is the case, church, that is also why the only name that can possibly fill Paul's lofty description of love is the name Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment and personification of love because Jesus is the embodiment and personification of God. And you know, church, that helps us define things a little bit, right? Because for Paul, love is to act towards others the way Christ acted towards us. And so for Paul, to love is to act towards others the way Christ acted towards us. And when Paul is telling us to grow up in love, he is calling us to grow in the character of Christ. He is calling us to strive to be more Christ-like. And church, if that's the case, look, other ideologies, other things can lead you to exclude. Other things can lead you to hate. But there is no way that you can grow in Christ. There is no way you can grow and love the way he loves and also grow in your desire to feel superior to others. There is no way that you can grow in Christ and begin to love the way he loves and at the same time grow in your desire to hate the outsider. Because Jesus, he lived in the exact opposite direction of that. He ate with sinners. He sat with outsiders. And even though he was the son of God, he humbled himself. He came down. He took on flesh. He went to the cross to die for you. He became an outsider so that you could become an insider. And so, church, part of what Paul is saying in all of these verses, in all of this, he's saying all other loves... Every other love, any other object of our love is but a dim reflection. It is but a shadow of this love divine. And that's why, church, the answer to harmful, blinding fanaticism or a church that is prideful or a church that is selfish is not less of Christ. It's more of Christ. 
It's growing up in the character of Christ so that we could love others like Christ. Church, spiritual babies are impatient. Spiritual babies are unkind. They envy. They are arrogant. They boast. But people who are grown up in love, love like Christ. And so the question, the big question before us today is how? How do we grow up in this divine love? How do we grow up to become more like Christ? Well, church, I think a good place to start is, number one, we can acknowledge our need. A way that we can grow up in this divine love is to acknowledge our need, to remind ourselves that according to the growth chart of love, we are children at best. And if according to the growth chart of love, we are children at best, we need to continually to ask the Holy Spirit to help grow in us the heart of Christ. So I think that's one thing, one very powerful thing that we could do to grow in the love of Christ, to acknowledge our need and to ask for help. And church, I think that this movie also illustrates another way that we can grow in the love of Christ. And that's because um, Jojo, when you look at Jojo and you look at, you know, like um, everything that he goes through, Jojo's love and his devotion to Hitler made him want to be like Hitler. Jojo's love and devotion to Hitler made him want to live like him. His love and devotion to him made him want to be near him, made him want to um, have him in his imagination. And this is the thing, isn't it, church? We grow to resemble what we love. We grow to resemble what we love. So, church, if you want to become more like Christ... If you want to simply nurture your love for Christ, one of the best things that you can do is to simply nurture your love for Christ. If you want to grow to become more like Christ, one of the best things that you could do is to nurture your love for Christ. So you you can make time to grow your relationship with him. You can spend time in solitude with him. You can pray. You can look at the biblical text and, and pray that the Lord meets you there. You can go and serve him so that you can meet with him there and rely on him where he sends you. You can surround yourself with people who want to grow that very same relationship so that you can encourage one another to love Christ more. So church, one of the things that we can do to grow in our we can do is to ask the Holy Spirit for help, and that's definitely an important thing. And the other thing that we can do to nurture is to nurture our love for Christ. Why? Because we resemble what we love. And church, part of nurturing our love for Christ, part of stoking our fire for Christ, part of growing in our um, desire for him is to ask the question, why? Why do I love Christ? Why do I love Christ? Let me tell you what I'm talking about here. There's a story of an old farmer and a king. I think I first heard it um, in a sermon by Tim Keller, but I'm absolutely sure he's not the one that made this thing up. Um, and there's a story about an old farmer and a king. And this farmer, he, he loves this king. He's a great king. He's a wonderful king. And so what he ends up doing is he brings this king his finest carrot. Like he was growing it, like in his field. He was like fertilizing all day. It was like this dirty old carrot, but it was like his best to give. And so the king, he sees this carrot and he thanks this nobleman. I mean, he thanks this farmer for this, for this gift. 
And then the king, he ends up giving this farmer two of his best horses so that farmer can continue to sow his field and plant and all of those things and, and grow good things. And the relationship between the farmer and the king continued to grow, all of this good stuff. And while this was happening, while this gift exchange was kind of happening, there was a nobleman who was in the king's courts and he saw this goes, go on. And the nobleman was like, oh my gosh, you give the king something, you get something better back. This is awesome. And so he runs home and he immediately goes and he gives the king his very best horse. And then the king, he receives this gift from the nobleman. He says, thank you. But then he doesn't give anything back. So the nobleman's like, what's going on? How come, what, what's happening here? The nobleman's all confused. And then the king says, you know, the farmer brought his gift to me out of his love for me. But you brought your gift to me out of your love for yourself. And it looked exactly the same. It was the exact same, like, thing. But the intent and the heart and, and the reasoning why they did it was so very different. And so, church, let me ask you today, do you love Christ? If you do, the next step to ask is why. Why do you love Christ? Do you love Christ for who he is? Or do you love him for what he can give you? Because, you know, if you love someone for what they can give you, if you essentially love someone for yourself, it will never be as deep. It will never be as lasting. It will never be as rich. It will never be as formational as loving them for them. And, you know, church, in this movie, I mean, you can kind of see this principle kind of break down. You can see this principle kind of unfold, right? Because you can kind of tell that Jojo was near the end of his relationship with Hitler, that Jojo was ready to grow up when he started to realize that he did not actually love Hitler for Hitler. Jojo loved Hitler to belong to something. Jojo loved him to fill the void of his missing father. But he didn't actually love Hitler himself. And we see this when Elsa, the, the girl in the trailer, she saw, she saw this and she knew this was going on when she said, you're not a Nazi, Jojo. You're a 10-year-old kid who likes dressing up in a funny uniform and wants to be a part of a club. You love because you want to belong. And that realization for Jojo was the beginning of the end of Jojo's imaginary relationship, right? But, but what was the end of the end? The end of the end, how Jojo finally finds his way out of his fanaticism was by developing a love for Elsa. How Jojo finally finds his way out of his love for Hitler was he was started to grow this love for this Jewish girl that was hiding in his attic. In many ways, whatever love he had for Hitler was displaced by a richer and truer and more powerful love for her. And so church... Look, when Jojo looked past what Hitler could give him, when Jojo looked past that, all he found was a controlling, domineering monster. But can I tell you, when you look past what Jesus can give you, when you look past what he can give you, what you will find is that richer and truer and purer love that can displace all other loves. 
You know, if you look at anything that you love for long enough, if you look at anything, there will always be a kind of letdown. There will always be a kind of disappointment. And that's because everything else is but a dim reflection. Everything else is but a shadow of Christ and his love for us. And like Paul is saying in our passage, everything else is temporal. Everything else will fade away. But this divine love, this true love, this love will never end. And Paul's promise in this passage is that one day we will come face to face with it. We will see it fully because we will see Christ and we will know him fully. And church, if that is true, then today, the more we look to Christ and the more we see his love for us and the more that we grow in his love, won't it grow in us a lightness of being to keep moving on in the midst of it all? Like even though in this temporal world there is all of this beauty and all of this terror intermingled, won't it root us in a hope? And won't it give us a confidence that stands above it all and allows us to keep moving forward every day? Church, I pray that we can know that love. Church, I pray this week that you might be able to look past anything blocking your view of him, that you might look past your doubt, or you might look past your hurry, you might look past your busyness, that you might look past your fear, that you might look past that question, what's in it for me? I pray that you might look past it all so that you might see Christ, this love divine that already sees you and already knows everything about you and calls you to be his own, this love that is patient and kind to you. This love that does not envy or boast, even though he could. This love that is not arrogant or rude or insist in his own way. This love that is not irritable or resentful. This love that does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. This love that bears for you, that believes for you, that hopes for you, and endures for you. Church, I pray that we might grow up in this love, that we might be shaped by it, informed by it, and sustained by it, till the day we find our home in it, till the day when the perfect comes and the partial passes away. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Lord and gracious Father, um, there are so many things that um, that our affections are drawn towards. So many things that we fall in love with. We use that word all the time. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love tacos. I love chocolate. But Lord, I pray that um, we can follow the sunbeam back to the source. That we can, we can have eyes to see that you are the source of true love. Of love that it was the way that it was made meant to be, of divine love, of love pure, of love divine. And I pray that, you know, as a congregation and as a people, that we can revel in the audacity that we can know this love today, that we can experience it, that we can delight in it, that we can know you more by the power of your spirit. Let us wish and long for these 
these large hopes that sometimes we don't, we have, we've struggled believing and struggled holding on to. By the power of your spirit, I just pray that, you know, we can have the confidence of heart to say, Jesus knows me, Jesus loves me, Jesus sees me, and he walks with me every day. And if he does, what in this world will I fear? And what else in this world would I love that would ever come close to that? Let us be shaped by this love and formed by it and sustained by it from now to the day we see you again. All of these things we pray in your son's most beautiful and precious name. Amen.